This is episode four of Alohomora for June 3rd, 2012. I'm Kat Miller. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Rosie Morris. And I'm Noah Freed. Hey guys, uh, this episode we're going to actually have only staff members of the show on the site. Uh, we'll have fans on next week. We're thinking every fourth show or so, it's going to be all staff, because otherwise we wouldn't have a time to just talk all four of us, right? Right. Sounds good. So we're going to do a quick recap of the comments from last week's episode. Um, so we were talking about uh, ghosts and the Grey Lady in particular. So this comment is from Stoneshield128 from our main site. And it says that last week we theorised that the ghost in tights was the Grey Lady. They say that they think it's been confirmed by JKR that the Grey Lady is in the Mirror of Erised room when he and Ron go to look for the Mirror of Erised that night. Um, it's In the book it says, they pass the ghost of a tall witch gliding in the opposite direction. Do you guys think that could be her? Yep, I saw this comment on the site and uh, I think I responded. So that was really good information. I never had caught that, so... Definitely, if she confirmed it, obviously, um, you know, that's her, so that's good. But I still would like to think that the, the ghost in tights is the gray lady. I hope it is. I mean, it, hopefully, it, I mean you know, it might be. She could be yeah. both of them. She yeah, could she, be. But if it was her in the Mirror of Erised room, that means that... Do you think ghosts could see themselves in the Mirror of Erised? And what do you think the gray lady would have seen? Well, oh. we know that's uh, that's Helena. She probably... Maybe, maybe she saw herself in her past beauty. Or, or with the Bloody version. Baron. Ooh, yeah. Possibly. Happy with the Bloody Baron. There's a whole story to be told there. <laughs> yeah, it is. But I wonder Good. I wonder if it would work on ghosts anyway. Are they are they corporeal enough to would the mirror still have an effect? I don't know. Yeah. Good comment either way. <laughs> Definitely. Um so another comment from last week from our forums was by Ali Wood. Um it says I have several thoughts on Filch. Maybe he ended up like Petunia wanted to be, by begging Dumbledore. And because of his wizard fam- and because of his wizard family was allowed, or is his story more like Hagrid's? Did his parents perhaps try and force him to be magical and he failed? So Dumbledore took pity on him. Could he be hoping magic would rub off on him if he's constantly around, or did he just never fit into the Muggle world? Good comment. Um, I mean, yeah, I I don't think he really belongs anywhere. I think um, I would lean more toward his story being very much like Petunia's, where his family um, is magical and he just wanted to be a part of it so badly. And, um, you know, Dumbledore, for some reason, accepted him in. I'm sure that's that's the case. That sounds like Hagrid to me. Like, he just, you know, wants to be part of the wizarding world so bad he doesn't care what he's doing. As long as he's there. It kind of makes sense that he thought it might, some of it might rub off on him, considering he wanted to learn about all the quick spells. Right. Mm -hmm. Sure. But, at least he has a good life with Mrs. Norris there. Yeah. (laughs) That's true. Well, Snooge on the forum says, uh, I may be missing something here, but I thought it was obvious why Filch was at Hogwarts. Madam Pomfrey. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Two estranged characters who, I don't even think they have a scene together, but. No, I I always thought that there was a thing between Filch and um, um, the librarian, Irma Pence. I thought that (laughs) was what was happening. Oh, that makes makes sense. I'm sure there are fan fictions about both. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just because they're equally foul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great. I think it's worth mentioning, Allie Wood posted a great essay on the site as well. So we have some frequent commenters who are doing tons of stuff on the site. Thank you very much. 
And appropriately, our next comment from Snape Escape, who's been we've been commenting on a lot of shows. It's great. At one point in the podcast, the subject was brought up of evil characters, often being depicted as ugly in their description. The Dursleys are not a very good-looking lot. Crab and Goyle are much the same in that manner. As is Snape, who is hook-nosed and greasy-haired, although it turns out he wasn't that evil in the end. I think, like the cartoonization of the Dursleys discussed in other, another thread, this is a way of Joe to make it plain who is good and who is bad. In the earlier books, since the readers are younger and less mature, there is just this is just black and white. As the series progresses, shades of gray appear. And in Half-Blood Prince, we see that bad characters aren't always as ugly, because Tom Riddle is a handsome-looking young man with lots of charm. Generally speaking, though, I think that ugliness is often associated with the antagonist. It's just a traditional thing. Yeah, this comes in response to our, our discussions we've been having about uh, the Dursleys were often shown as kind of cartoonish, uh, in that way sort of ugly. Snape as well seems kind of kind of dark and unfriendly just based on his appearance. You don't want to spend any time with him. So this was an... We've gone over this a lot. It's a narrative... Yeah. It's a narrative strategy on the part of Joe, making them instantly ugly and, and dark so that we don't want to go towards them. Um, and yeah, that it's true. It's true in a lot of books that the antagonists are just ugly. Yeah, and it continues. And then uh, we, we mentioned last podcast with the Slytherins. The Slytherins also have this sort of inherent uh, darkness with them or... or or something. They're not, they don't, yeah, they just don't seem very friendly. I like the fact that they pointed out that Tom Riddle was a handsome evil person, though, because I think it's it's the ones that are secretly evil, that don't appear evil, that are the most dangerous. Absolutely. That's very true. Like me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're so evil. Evil genius. Hufflepuff. Yeah. Next comment. Right, so this one is from the forums as well, and it's from Silverdoe25, and, and it's on Peeves. I love your theory, and it made me spawn, spawn another. First off, according to Joe herself, Paul, uh, Peeves isn't a ghost. He was never a living person. So how about if the original strife between the founders caused the creation of Peeves? After all, they created Hogwarts, but then relations went awry. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's really that, interesting. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I liked your theory too, Rosie, but this one seems to make... More sense since Joe has said that Peeves came with the building; that he's yeah. been yeah. there as as long as Hogwarts has been around. That would make a lot of sense, but then why does he have this this fear of the Bloody Baron directly? That's true as well. Mm. We just need to know more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, now that the encyclopedia is no, you know, no firm plans, we may never know. But it may I'm come out in Pottermore. So- yeah, I'm not too sorry about no like physical encyclopedia because i think that's what pottermore is really it's it's just there to be kind of an interactive encyclopedia yeah i'm sure that's true and she wants to she obviously wants fan want fans to go over there i think all the all that extra additional content will be put in pottermore as it comes up Let's which hope. is good yeah. yeah i'm a little greedy though i want it both i want it online but i also want a physical copy that i can just like put under my pillow at night or something i agree I'm with you on that one. <laughs> hey, Pottermore could be released in a book set. Maybe. That would be that would be cool. And there's actually a great comment on the forums um, concerning Pottermore. Um, it's by I'll be in the library. Um, here she says, I was recently unlocking things in the library on Pottermore and thought it was interesting that Joe herself seemed to nod at the ethical dilemma of animal cruelty in relation to transfiguration. A beginner's guide to transfiguration says. 
incomplete transfigurations are difficult to put right, but you must attempt to do so. Leaving the head of a rabbit on a footstool is irresponsible and dangerous. Say reparafage. Am I saying that right? And the Reparifage, object. Reparafage, okay. And the object or creature should return to its natural state. Larger creatures are difficult to transfigure, except by skilled and powerful wizards. Know your limits. Here she continues, it seems she is aware that leaving a transfigured creature deformed or quasi-formed would be a poor use of magic, therefore implying that there is an expected level of maturity and the necessity of a moral, moral compass when practicing magic. So, so this is quite frightening. Now we know for sure that when you're transfiguring something, an inanimate object uh, into an animal or vice versa, you are creating something with life that could be in a potentially tortured state if it's in between those two different realms. So, damn, that is pretty problematic, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, I really like um, the next, uh, another comment that we had on the forums that came from me, just me, on the same topic. It says, I always assumed transfiguration was always involving the molecules and atoms and such. So you'd be literally manipulating the atoms of a thing into another. It's using what is already there. So I think the desk would be completely a pig and I would eat it. <laughs> I, I always assume that there is a, quote, science to magic that they get taught. And I really like this because, you know, I studied science. So this makes a lot of sense. And I like the fact that science and magic can sort of come together. But I'm still, I'm, I'm a little concerned, me, just me, that you would think about eating the pig. I'm still... Are you going to eat that pig, about... Caleb? No, I, I'm I don't. I wouldn't I'm, either. I'm sticking to my guns. I'm not eating that pig that came from a desk. <laughs> that 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 I mean, pig that is that's potentially essential desk inside. But yeah. I mean, does that go again against like you know the elemental laws of transfiguration? Because you know the the only one we ever learn about is that you can't summon food or you can't make food. Yeah, Gam's law. So, but but that could be interpreted as you can't maybe pop food into existence, but maybe you can transfigure something else into food. Hmm. I would still argue you're bringing food into existence because the wood from the desk could not be, in theory, manipulated into wood. Okay, so what I about, mean, a wood could not be manipulated into food. I don't know. I just had a great thought. What if you can you can eat the pig technically, but it provides no nutrients? Yeah, if it's got the nutritional value of the desk. Yes. So like you Which, couldn't make um, a okay. salad out of a stone because it would just have the nutritional values of a stone. But you can so still, it could be like artificially flavored to taste like a pig, but you don't get any. <laughs> but, it, but it does I mean, nothing for you. You don't get any protein from the meat. Okay, so I buy that. So it's yes. like junk junk food. Yeah, it, just for pleasure eating. So if you're just if there's like a fat wizard one day who just wants to transfigure his whole house into various food. So yeah, maybe if like you know Zonkos needed a new item, they could have trick candies that are actually made from wood. Yeah. That sounds more like a Weasley product. Uh, that's fair. Yeah, <laughs> but I, th I think that but that makes sense because it follows with the laws, and then it makes it it's still a pig in a way, but it it's not. You know, it's an illusion, but to the highest quality because you can still eat it. <laughs> right. Um. So there's this cool comment um, from the forums from Phoenix. Um, Noah, you want to read that? Yeah. It would suggest that the transformed thing is always equal to the thing into which it is transformed in terms of mass, just in the number of atoms, which doesn't equal mass. This is in terms of the, the talk they were having before. This more or less seems to be the case in the books, since they tend to transform large objects into large ones and small objects into smaller ones. But what about conjuring and vanishing spells? 
following your theory, I, su I suppose that vanishing, the vanishing spell can only be a colloquial term. While what you really do is transform the atoms of an object into oxygen and nitrogen, in other words, into air. But if you did that, could you breathe them in? And if so, why can't you eat the pig? <laughs> All right, so that's that's kind of an, that's a big comment. But I'm thinking that they're they're saying that the vanishing spell is also transforming the atoms into something that is uh, invisible, like a gas, and then you could potentially bring it in, uh, breathe it in. That's interesting. Yeah, that I actually so I actually wrote an essay um, sort of on this once when prompted um, about what exactly um, happens with vanishing as far as atoms and molecules go. Cool. Um, I'll have to dig that essay up. It's been like a year and a half since I wrote it, but I'll have to dig that up. I think it's fascinating. I had never thought that a vanishing spell was. Um, I mean, it's essentially a form of transfiguration. I mean, that's I mean that's what the comment is saying, but I had never thought of it that way before. That you're transforming it into invisible objects or There's atoms. I had never thought of that. I thought that was fantastic. I, I always considered it to be when you're when you're vanishing it, you're really sending it to another plane or realm, and uh, maybe there there's a realm again parallels the Wizarding World where all vanished objects go, or are they maybe they're erased from existence completely? But that's that's troubling. But yeah, just a, an interesting comment from Phoenix because it would make sense with the transfiguring debate, transfiguration debate, because uh, that would that would make sense where all those objects go. Well, and there was a comment on the forums, um, kind of in rebuttal to this by Molokos. I If I said that wrong, I apologize. Molokos. <laughs> Here she says, but this seems to suggest that you can literally change the elements into something else. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems to go against the very laws of nature. I mean, from what little I've learned from 10th grade science, you can't create elements. You can cause reactions by combining different elements, which might result in a whole different element, but you can't just create oxygen atoms, for example. And again, in order to cause an element to change, there has to be a catalyst, something that causes a chemical reaction. Does this mean that magic is, in scientific terms, simply a very powerful, special type of catalyst? Are all spells just scientifically justifiable chemical reactions? <laughs> I love this. Um, so I teach 10th grade science. So right now, so this is really, I'm glad that you know your stuff, Malakas. Uh, but I think so. If you stick with your studying chemistry, you'll know about nuclear reactions where you actually can change the elements. So I think that somehow magic is able to go to this higher order where they can, you know, make more powerful reactions happen. And you're not just sticking with, um, manipulating what you have but actually creating new things because i think that's sort of what has to happen here um, more than just the muggle basis of chemical reactions i'm gonna stop before i get too much no but it, it um, nerds it, it nerd seems speak can, in science you can transfigure something into anything else right there's potentially yeah. no limit it's interesting to think of in terms of general magic as well as transfiguration though like the spell Aguamenti where it creates a stream of water where is that water coming from is it being summoned from somewhere is it being created out of the air what where is it coming from yeah i would say it's being pulled out of the air but yeah cuz i would be willing to bet that another one of gam's laws would be you wouldn't be able to create something like water from nothing so i bet you're manipulating the moisture in the air or something yeah, something like that yeah. and you use the use the language of magic to conjure that or to to access that those particles so really all of magic is just sort of um a way of influencing the the atoms around 
to a certain in a certain way. Well, I mean that makes sense because even Hogwarts is based in you know the um, earth, air, water, and um, fire. Wow. So I guess that makes sense. So perhaps yep. there's no magic in pig farts. <laughs> <laughs> no true. special moon magic. Moon magic definitely. <laughs> Cool. Well, great comments, guys. Um, definitely keep them coming on the forums or on the main site um, at alohamora.mugglenet.com. Yeah, and if you want to write up Gamp's laws for us, just post them in Alohomora, and we'll we'll analyze that. I want a fan to send in the, the best set of laws. We can figure this out, guys. We can. How many did Hermione tell us there are? Three? Four? Uh, I want to say there's five. Five. Let me look it up. The encyclopedia doesn't know the answer? Caleb. Uh, I know, but I don't. I want to say there's five, but I want to double check. Okay. Um, which has five principal exceptions, okay. of which food is one. So, yeah, there are five. We only know about one, about food. Okay, so theorize, guys. Come up with the other four. Let's do it. And we'll read them on the show. That's right. Okay, so last week we had the special Noah's Close Read section, in which I sang the Sorting Hat song, and we looked at the text of the song, and we tried to, we tried to take it and analyze what sorting is all about, um, and, you know, what we could read into the houses, and what, what the hat was trying to tell us. And here's a comment from Allie Wood, again, she's commenting everywhere. I believe Pettigrew does belong in Slytherin. He's very crafty, sneaky, and conniving. He only looks out for himself as well. Sirius Lupin says he wouldn't go back to Voldemort or kill Harry until he was sure it would benefit him. He would be a negative interpretation interpretation of Slytherin values, but he has the qualifications nonetheless. That's not exactly we, tied into We that. We settled on uh, Hufflepuff for him, right? For Pettigrew? I think that's what most of us said. For Pettigrew, yeah. Just just because he, uh, he was able to wait it out as a rat. You know, that takes a lot of patience and hard work, believe it or not. Right. Mm-hmm. But I buy this common as well. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I wonder if uh, he probably wasn't a hat stall. He's probably not in a, not deep enough for a hat stall. Yeah, probably not. But he still didn't belong in Gryffindor. I think that was our point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then there's the question of choice or abilities. What really, what really comes to front when someone's getting sorted? And it so happened that I asked the the posed question of the week last week, and here it is: When you get sorted, how much weight does your choice have in the matter? Is it end-all, be-all, or is it based on some objective traits that you have? And if it is, does that mean that some people are essentially more intelligent than others? Is Joe making some commentary about intelligence existing in some perfect, objective form? Is it based on where you want to be, or on something that you essentially have when you're getting sorted? And we got a lot of great comments from this on Facebook, Twitter. A lot of comments. Everywhere. But, you know, because we want to drive you guys there, we're just going to read mostly comments that we got from the main page of Alohomora. So, this one's from Nana. I think the decision is ultimately the hats. As we see with Neville, who prefers the less competitive Hufflepuff, the hat knows that Neville needs to be around courage in order for his own to develop. His natural abilities have been repressed by his grandmother. He was unaware that her grief about her son has spilled over into the way she treats her grandson. The hat overrules Neville's wishes, seeing that Neville will develop best in Gryffindor, surrounded by strong peers. Hermione, on the other hand, makes a comment on the train that she hopes she's in Gryffindor, because she'd been asking around and reading, and she says, it sounds by far the best. So she prefers a house, and the hat judges correctly that she has qualities that are superior to her intelligence. 
In Harry's case, he already feels prejudiced against Slytherin because of what Ron has told him and because he met Malfoy and his toadies. He thinks they seem an unpleasant lot. The hat finds sorting Harry difficult, but as Harry t later tells Little Albus, it took Harry's choice into account. One of the goals of school is to help children develop the ability to make choices for themselves, and Harry's early example of this convinces the hat to consider his wishes. That's a, that's a big comment, but... What do, you, what do you guys think? Just throw it to you. It seems that choice is, is pretty big, but if the hat feels it very strongly, they might just put put that student in a, in a certain house based on what he thinks, he or she thinks, the hat. I mean, yeah, I actually completely agree with this comment. Um, I, I think for myself, I don't have a lot of confidence in my int intelligence. At least, it's funny, not until I was sorted in Ravenclaw did I have confidence in it, but... I feel like myself as an 11-year-old going to Hogwarts, I would I would want to be on Hufflepuff because that was a house that I've always kind of seen myself in. And I wasn't a hat stall, but I could see myself kind of fighting internally with the hat. So I, I, I agree with this. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there's um, there's another really great comment from the main side that kind of plays on the same thing from uh, Ryan Caps, which says, I think it's pretty evident by some of the people in this series that it's totally your choice. Peter Pettigrew, Snape, and Zachariah Smith all don't really belong in their respective houses. Peter not being brave at all, Snape being immensely brave, and Zacharias being totally arrogant. We know Snape wanted to be placed in Slytherin, and I guess we can infer the other two chose their houses as well. I think the Sorting Hat knows which house you should be put in, but you ultimately are able to choose. And the people who don't question the hat or don't have a preference for any house take up their house qualities qualities. And try to act more like the traits they feel they should represent. Yeah, do we do we know whether or not Neville agreed with the hat in the end that it should that he should go to Gryffindor? Because then it would it would mean that the hat kind of had to badger him a little bit until the the truth came out or until Neville could make that choice. Well, I mean, it's not like Neville can say no. If the hat puts you in Gryffindor, that's that's where you are. I mean, no, but there's probably an internal discussion inside the head. Well, I mean, we know that there is, but what I'm saying is the hat has the final choice regardless of what the wearer wants. Well, what if Neville had said no towards the end? No, I, I definitely want Hufflepuff. Was he going to get no, up think, and walk away? Well, I think if he would have said that in the end, then the hat would have given him Hufflepuff if he would have been defiant about it. That's, but he that's what I'm not. saying, yeah. I, yeah. I don't think so. I think that the hat um, does what it wants. Um, but Ebony Moonpool from Twitter um, reminds us of one of the great Dumbledore quotes that it is our choices, Harry, and not our abilities that show who we, who we really are. So essentially, if we are trying to show who we are through our house, then our, our choice has to be important when it comes to that. But Rosie and Ebony Moonpool, what if our natural abilities condition us to make certain choices? Then perhaps the hat can guide us to make a better choice. I think it would still allow us to make the final decision. Mm, then we get some really big questions about how much influence does the hat have slash should it have. Right, so uh, I'm wondering then if, you know, if we're saying that it's the choices, so if Neville really, really, really wanted to be in Hufflepuff, should, he, he, should he have been? Well, I think if he had that much determination, he would have really been a Gryffindor. <laughs> But to back up this point, there's a really great comment from Marauder River 14231 um, from the main site that says, there must be some kind of consideration about where the person wants to go. If you think about it, these are a bunch of 11-year-olds who are going to a boarding school for the first time. 
I believe that the sorting hat needs to take uh, the sorting hat takes their need for comfort and happiness into account when deciding um, to put someone into a house. I think it would know if someone was going to be completely miserable in the house. So if if you have a choice that you are so adamant that you need to be in this house and you would be miserable if you were anywhere else, then the sorting hat would, you know, know make you feel better about it. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't even have to say anything. I feel this comment speaks to a lot of what you were talking about earlier, Kat. Yeah. Yeah. About like being 11 and, you know, thinking you go somewhere, but I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But I still don't think that, I don't think the sorting hat would bend its decision. Uh, we don't see it happen for anybody. For Harry. Except Harry, yeah. So we can say that happens for everyone, just because we haven't gone into everybody else's mind. But the only reason it happens for Harry is, um, you know, because that part of Voldemort is in him. That truly is part of him. That's part of his ability. That's part of his personality. Oh, I, I always disagreed with that. I thought that he was almost placed in Slytherin because Harry was genuinely... Um, had a little bit of Slytherin in him. And not just, you know, speaking literally of Voldemort. I think Harry's drive for ambition and stuff is, is totally true. And also to have the very best of friends. I, I think the fandom is kind of split on that on that point. My my uh, opinion personally is that Harry is, you know, he could have been Slytherin for real. Okay, well, um, Loomis Knight 3 from the main site, um, I would say probably agrees with you on that. Here she says... Um, One thing I think is really important when considering whether or not our choice is taken into account is just how dominant some personalities out there can be. For instance, when Draco goes to get sorted, the hat barely touches his head before yelling out a definitive Slytherin. This suggests that Draco, we already know has a preference for Slytherin anyway, has such a strong match for this house that the hat barely needs to read his thoughts and personality before placing him there. This is interesting compared to those who, like McGonagall, are hat stalls and require much more time to figure out. Does this mean that some people have black and white personalities like Draco, while others are in the gray area like Harry? And additionally, does it mean that the hat really does see every everything, every aspect of us in the second it takes to touch our head? Or was Draco's personality really just that strong? Yeah, that's definitely an interesting question. Um, you know, the fact that the sorting hat sorted Draco so quickly but I think by the end of the series Draco's anything but black and white I think you know the whole mouth the Malfoy family they're some of my favorite characters because they evolve as these very gray characters and not black and white so I agree but when he's 11 I think he's definitely black and white his absolutely yeah yeah and if we want to go the choice uh route he really wanted Slytherin like he was probably screaming Slytherin in his head so maybe the abilities didn't even like, the Sorting Hat didn't even have time to consider abilities because he just heard Slytherin really loud, and that was enough. Well, and I mean, I think Draco embodies the Slytherin, you know, traits anyway, regardless oh, yeah. of whether he's black and white or, in the end, gray. That's right, and he's proud of that house throughout, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. And that ends our great discussion of the Sorting Hat and all of our fan comments this week. But uh, keep them coming. We love to read them, and... Uh, Uh, whatever you post it could be on the next show so we're going to jump right into this week's discussion we're going to be discussing chapters 9 and 10 of philosopher's stone the midnight duel and halloween (laughs) so starting off we're looking at chapter 9 the midnight duel um the the chapter starts off very interesting uh mentioning draco 
Harry's talking about him, and Draco has immediately replaced Dudley as Harry's main antagonist. I thought this is very clear. Uh, Jill made this very firm in the beginning of the chapter that he is Harry's enemy, uh, which I think plays off, um, obviously, through this um, chapter a lot that we'll be jumping into. The first thing, though, that I took notice of in this chapter was Neville receiving his remembrance from um, his grand. And look, I'm thinking in the beginning, what a cool thing. You know, it lets you know that you forget things that, you know, blows this red smoke. But then I thought, isn't there kind of this inherent design flaw with this object? Something that would tell me, hey, you forgot something, would never be really that useful if it didn't tell you what exactly that thing is. What do we think? Yeah, I think it'd be really just annoying. Because you'd just constantly know that you've forgotten something and you'd never be able to remember what that thing was. It's like taunting <laughs> you slightly. If it could yeah. be more like a magic eight ball where there was like a little thing floating inside that said, you know, your book or your wand or whatever, that would be much more helpful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I use my I use my iPhone all the time to remind me of stuff because I, like Neville, would forget everything. But like I have to like, it, I have to have it tell me what I'm forgetting or else it would just drive me insane. Yeah, I yeah. It seems kind of pointless in a way to have not for the plot well no that's true but why (laughs) couldn't have been like a um i don't know anything else but a remember all why is that something she felt she needed to create i think it just fits into neville's character it's another funny funny little motif in the plot of him being completely having all this these terrible things happening to him or not 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 so bad, but just uh, he's locked out of his dormitory. The the whole incident with uh, at the at the pitch, which we're going to get into. So this completely fits in, and a, and a great movie scene. Well, that is true. <laughs> it fits in with his family as well. I mean, his gran and his was it his great uncle that threw him out of a window. Yep. It's all that kind of. They're always trying to make him better than he is, even, and they won't actually let him have his own chance to shine. I have a rather uh, morbid connection. If, if you guys are willing. Okay. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. The fact that his parents are demented and they can't remember anything. Aww. Aww. Oh, that's, that's really sad. tragic. Poor Neville. So maybe... Neville's... Maybe Gran just wants him to test his his memory. Aww. And sadly, the tragedy continues for <laughs> Neville in this chapter. <laughs> because pretty soon, um, the Gryffindor students find out they are going to be going to their first flying lessons, which Harry is really excited about, except for the fact that, you know, they have to take flying lessons with Slytherins, of course. And quickly into this, uh, well, first in the flying lessons, Harry is stunned when the broom pops up to his hand immediately and doesn't really work out so much for Hermione. But the big thing here is that Neville gets anxious, takes off, and eventually breaks his wrist because he's a klutz. And, um... So one of the interesting things that I definitely did not catch the first time I read it, um, but did this time, is uh, when Malfoy is making fun of Neville, it's actually Parvati that um, is the first one to scream out to Neville's defense. Uh, I think she says, shut up, Malfoy. And um, I was wondering, is this really the only time we see um, Parvati stand out as a Gryffindor? And it makes me wish we could have seen more from Parvati throughout the series instead of just, you know, glimpses through Dumbledore army meetings. Yeah, I think maybe she has 12 lines in the whole series. So Yeah. But she's a she's a strong character though. I mean, we'll we'll remember this and then when she uh comes up, we'll just we'll know there's another character here that Joe was thinking to develop on the side. 
it, it's possible we could get some backstory on the twins in Pottermore. Yeah. She actually stands I, up for Harry as well when, when McGonagall returns um, and says, how dare you, you might have broken your neck. Um, it then says, it wasn't his fault, Professor. Be quiet, Miss Patil. So it was obviously yeah. Pavati that stood up again then. Right, because her yeah. sister is not in Gryffindor. Right. Yeah, that's no. what I want to hear so much more about those two. Pavati. You know, what sets them apart. They're identical twins, but, you know, they're obviously very different. If and no one, ever, no one ever thinks about them. Yeah. Man. But, um, so as the... The scene continues. Um, Hermon- so Harry tries to um, take off after Malfoy because he has taken the Remember All. And Hermione tries to stop Harry from going after him. And not because it's dangerous, but because it's against Hooch's instructions um, to stay on the ground. And that it might get them into trouble. Do we think this is a bit anti-Gryffindor from Hermione to warn him not against the danger of it, but against the rules? I, I just uh, I want to comment that I think in, in ways it's... It's more brave to to not actually do anything, to kind of take the moral high road, in a sense, and just kind of, because it's kind of easy to just go up and antagonize right back, but it's kind of hard to sometimes step up and be like, okay, wait a second, take a step back, and maybe maybe it's the Hufflepuff in me speaking here, but, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not really going to engage it, it's not a big deal, and it's not, uh, it's just, it's not right in sort of a big justice sense. No, I think this is Hermione's Ravenclaw nature coming out of her because she's very into, um, you know, following the teacher's rules. And I think that this is, this is just, like I said, her eagle coming out. Yeah. I agree. I think, well, and we'll get to this uh, a little bit later, but I think these two chapters actually set up a really good glimpse of both sides of Hermione. Yeah, So I agree. And um, so Harry... You know, ignores Hermione's rules um, or warnings and takes off. And this is such a great scene. We know that um, Harry will use this scene later um, in Prisoner of Azkaban for something that we'll get to then. But um, he has such joy taking off um, on the broom. And do we think it's it's more the rush of the wind and just being in that moment, or that he the feeling that he's really good at something that he did not need to be taught, as he mentions. Um, and is this the first time that Harry really thinks he's good at something? Yeah, I definitely think it is. I mean, the Dursleys told him he was trash, good for nothing for so long that Harry thought, you know, when he got to Hogwarts that he'd be miles and miles and miles behind everybody. So I think this is a really positive experience for him. It's about time he felt good about himself. Yeah. And, and as we know, James was a, was he, he was a chaser. Is that well, uh, I think he was. I think he was a seeker. No, no, that 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 was the movie. But James is actually a, a beater, I believe, right? He's definitely not a. Beater. <laughs> no, he's not a beater. He's a, he plus would be a chaser. chaser. He's a chaser. Yeah. He's a chaser. He was yeah. a chaser. So I think I, there's also in the scene the fact that like it's in his blood a bit, and that, that gets mentioned later. So he feels like he can naturally do this just as his father could. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's a. This is a, a slight foreshadowing, and it's also just Harry's natural sense that he can do this and maybe a little bit of learned memory from his parents or maybe even riding the broomstick when he was one. Yeah, it, I always find that right. really interesting in terms of the, the photograph that we find later on um, in Grimwald Place where we, we see uh, baby Harry on a baby broom riding around. Oh, how fun would that be? Just had to say that. Yeah. A little <laughs> one-year-old on a broomstick. Come on. Oh my gosh, but isn't that baby lovely fever. though? Like, 
this is, is the one thing that his parents have actually taught him and that he he still remembers even though he doesn't actually remember them teaching him very it's, instinctual it's natural because that's it's right so this there. is not this is actually not his first time on a broom yeah, yeah that's true oh that's true which is amazing yeah first time i thought about it yeah hmm. okay so then mcgonagall finds harry flying he's ca- he's caught the remember all and then she's bringing him to to wood and then harry thinks in his head wood thought harry bewildered was wood a cane she was going to use on him <laughs> <laughs> and like when i first read this i was like oh no he's in trouble but now i'm like oh my gosh no psychological damage my ass the dursleys they they've a- they've instilled some like fear in him do you think they used to beat him no. i bet they did I Wasn't it threatened so. at um, the school that he was meant to be going to? Was, yes. They made it up, didn't they? With um, when he sees um, Aunt Marge next year, and they say, uh, "Do they use the cane boy?" and he has to say, "Oh yes, they use it a lot." Yeah, and when he they tell him that he's going to St. Brutus's or whatever. But are you yeah. going to are you going to tell me that the Dursleys have never smacked Harry? I don't think so. I don't think they would. They'd be too afraid. No, I don't I, think they would know how to. They certainly don't hit Dudley, so I don't think they would know how to discipline a child. But they way. hate Harry. I mean, I think they, 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 yeah. yeah, but I still don't see them hitting him or something. Well, they let Dudley hit him with his smelting stick. Yeah, that's true. And look but at I this. Still don't... Look at this line. Look at the casualness of this line. Was wood a cane she was going to use on him? So he's familiar with the practice mm. of beating. Yeah. By by I mean, as a disciplinary that's, action. That's true. I don't hmm. think he's actually ever had a cane used on him, though. I think he's idea he's he's used to the threat, not the actual punishment. Did, well, I mean, we could, yeah. Did Harry go to primary school? Is that a yeah? Because that's where he ended up on on the roof, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. So I wonder if that's where he got beaten. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, or at least technically, if he it's didn't... illegal. They wouldn't be able to do that in England. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or maybe if it didn't happen to him, he knew of people it did happen to, so that's how he's familiar with it. Okay. I just don't think the Dursleys did it. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I would say probably not Petunia, but I could see Vernon. Easy. Hmm. Maybe so. Anyway, beatings aside. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So McGonagall comes back after Harry has made this amazing dive and grab of the, uh, the Remembrall. And she sees Harry fly... And as um, you know, Noah's already mentioned, she takes him to Wood. We think that he is um, getting punished at first, but really we find out Wood is this keeper for the Quidditch team. They go into this room, and I found this um, part really interesting. She shouts for Peeves to get out of this classroom, and even though Peeves you know, mutters some things as he goes, he immediately leaves. Um, he listens to McGonagall immediately. So it got me thinking that maybe he listens to someone other than the Bloody Baron. I mean, the Bloody Baron may be the one that scares him the most, but... You know, maybe he listens to some professors like McGonagall other than, more than others, perhaps, say, Quirrell. I mean, I think McGonagall is pretty badass, so if you, if, you know, she walks into a room and tells you to do something, you do it. I don't think it matters who you are. You can probably also transfigure Peeves into a, (laughs) into a bowling ball. Into a desk and then into a pig? Into a desk and then a pig. How do you transfigure ghosts? Ghosts that... Incomporeal. Well, he's not a—he's not a ghost. He's not a ghost. He's, he's, he's a poltergeist. Right. Which would mean he's even less of a form, really. <laughs> well, he's yeah. solid, so. I don't see him becoming bacon on my plate, but. Yeah. <laughs> McGonagall's so good; she can transform a, an, a non-ghost. Yeah, maybe McGonagall can, you know, go above Gamsloth. Maybe she just found the way. 
Maybe she or wrote she can, the laws. She can transfigure everything into pigs and then eat them. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> Sister's got to eat, so. <laughs> but this this moment where um, McGonagall, you know, has this conversation with Wood and Harry, getting him onto the Quidditch team, it's one of my favorite. These are my favorite moments of McGonagall. Um, maybe it's my Gryffindor coming out, but where she's somewhat bending these rules that she's usually so firm with and shows such passion and determination for the success of Gryffindor House. And how do we think that this doesn't compromise her usual strict adherence to the rules? Well, we know she's, she's kind of part Ravenclaw, or she was almost chosen for Ravenclaw, so she's got both sides. She wants to adhere to the rules and, and, and logic, but at the same time, she's truly a Gryffindor, and she believes in, you know, that, that adventure. She, she wants to she or, see her little Gryffindors shine. So I think in this case, the Gryffindor side of her would win out and she would make this happen for Harry. But I mean, Do we think that makes her a lot like Hermione. They should be very really. similar. Yeah. But I mean, we learned so much about her past in Pottermore that I think she just has a, um, she's obviously a very competitive person. And I feel like mm-hmm. this is um, kind of beyond the rules for her. She just wants to win. She doesn't care if... It's Quidditch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She just wants to win. And Quidditch is so big at Hogwarts that I feel like any teacher would do this. But the Nimbus Especially 2000. if you've got someone like Snape taunting you about it. Uh, yeah. yeah, she can deal with Snape. She can take him. I think, yeah, that's something I really didn't think about um, until just now. How she and Snape must have this like competitive edge. Um, even though I don't know if she completely trusts Snape at this point even though she has you know Dumbledore's vote of confidence but it also it makes me just wonder what happens behind the scene with the two of them like what their relationship really is like because we see you know much later um in Deathly Hallows when they sort of face off but well Caleb you could tell us about rivalries among faculty right being a teacher no that's uh, uh that's true yeah that's something we can, you know, talk about much later. But I think, I think it's just interesting. They do have this sort of mm, almost friendly, sort of competitive edge, even though there is this um, behind the scenes, even more behind the scenes issue of you know good versus evil. I think they, to put I it think, simply, I think that they have to tolerate each other because of Dumbledore. You know, they're both in his good graces, kind of his left and right hand, man and woman, so to say. Definitely. So yeah. they they both know the same amount of information. Pretty much. So I would see them seeing as uh, seeing each other as an equal in a way. Yeah. Just the more and more I think about it, I love how the two of them set up the sort of um, relationship between Slytherin and Gryffindor House. Yeah. That's just I mean, they they kind of battle it out between each other through Quidditch. Exactly. And then it becomes much more um, it becomes a much uh, more open battle later on. That's right. Here's a quote from the books. You've got um, uh, McGonagall says, Heaven knows we need a better team than last year, flattened in that last match by Slytherin. I couldn't look at Severus Snape in the face for weeks. Yeah. I think so there's, there's some fun to it. it. I think it's, in, in part, it's, it's like it's good fun, but there's also a real rival, rivalry going on. And mm-hmm. as we said, tension that will bubble up to the surface later. Yeah. So, moving um so we get past that, and uh, we finally get this setup of this midnight duel, um, which um, s- propels this battle between Harry and Draco. Um, but as this battle, this duel gets set up, 
we see we have the second time that Hermione tries to stop Harry and Ron from breaking the rules. And it got me thinking because she constantly mentions what it will ha- what it will do to Gryffindor House. She's so concerned about Gryffindor House's reputation and point total. Do we think she's doing this to everyone in their house if things like this happen or is it just Harry and Ron? Is she trying to in her own awkward, sometimes unsuccessful way, trying to make friends with them? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think this is her Ravenclaw coming out of her because Ravenclaws, um, you know, they're unique and they're a little awkward, I would say. And I definitely feel like, yeah, it's Hermione trying to find some odd way to fit in with the Gryffindors. Yeah. Because and, and I feel like if... Go ahead. Think think back to the schoolyard, you're a young kid, and you, you kind of, you really want to be friends with them or you really like them. You know, you start haranguing them a little bit or maybe mm-hmm. that's all that's all kind of an old story but you know how you kind of you pick on the ones that you really like yeah because i definitely i feel like seamus and dean are doing some shifty stuff every now and then and hermione's not like all up in their business like she is well, maybe she is Ron. we don't know yeah maybe maybe, um, she, maybe she's stopping fred and george going out every night yeah i doubt <laughs> that I, I i think fred and george are kind of Above her level at this point. Yeah, she does try later on, though. Mm-hmm. She does. That's true. Uh, but so this this battling that starts to happen between Harry and Draco, why is Harry so eager to fight Malfoy and prove himself? There's a passage in the book where he's talking about you know the chance to finally prove himself. He doesn't want to miss this chance to battle him face to face. Is this a chance to not only get at Malfoy, but also to make up for all of the lost time where he could not face off with Dudley? I don't think it's necessarily about Dudley. I think it's about being a wizard in general. Malfoy is everything that being brought up in magic and especially being brought up in kind of offensive magic means. And if Harry's got this legend about being able to defeat this dark wizard that he really wants to to live up to and being faced with a chance to actually show that skill against Malfoy for the first time, I think he really wants to embrace his legend and become that hero that everyone wants him to be. And I think he wants to prove, too, that he's not um, incapable of doing magic. Because Malfoy, you know, constantly says, and Snape says, oh, well, you don't know anything, you you know. So I think Harry is really trying to prove himself. Yeah. And he's got this wand, and he wants to use it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, just Gryffindor. And I think we're, we're getting a, a, an intro, just as Harry is, into the, into the dynamics between Gryffindor and Slytherin. You know, they are always at, at ends, and you always have a personal enemy. And you just got to fight. And it doesn't help that Malfoy's been egging him on this entire, you know, first few chapters. Definitely. So we finally get to the the duel starting up. And before Harry and Ron take off to battle it out, they put on bathrobes. <laughs> so seriously, the best dueling attire is to put on some bathrobes. I mean, when you guys it- have to remember that this is what September in Scotland. It's very cold. <laughs> Oh. Especially in the middle of night. I mean, that's fair. But if I'm going off to a duel to battle off my uh, sworn enemy, I'm going to be dressed like a badass, and I'm going <laughs> to be ready to take someone well, out. I mean, they have cl- they have cloaks and hats and like dragon hide gloves and stuff. Yeah, I, why wouldn't he put that on? I don't know. I mean, yeah, they are eleven. Yeah, that's yeah, fair. Yeah, but they're, the- but they're dueling, so they must know that they're you know doing something slightly dangerous. But it's like it's like playful danger, though. It's like, oh, I'll be your second. You may just in case you die. Yeah. What? <laughs> but it's not. It's like it's not real. 
it's kind of like this is this is the very miniaturized version of the of the strifes that they will be having later, <laughs> and it's cute. Yeah. They also know that they there's a chance to be caught by um, Filch as well. So if if you were dressed up like for a duel, you're more likely to be put in detention than if you could like say, "Oh, we got lost on the way to the bathroom." Oh, excellent. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'll go with that. Good point. And of course, everything <laughs> that goes wrong will go wrong tonight. Murphy's Law, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, they they leave the common room with Hermione in tow because she. You know, doesn't want to get. Um, she wants to try to stop them from breaking the rules, and where she might have found the time to turn back, she can't because the fat lady has left her portrait. So this opens the door to the fact that the fat lady can sometimes leave, meaning Gryffindor students cannot get back in until she returns. So it happens to Hermione here. Do we think this is fair? Because in theory, Hufflepuffs and Slytherins can get into their common rooms via the. The portrait in the near the kitchens for no, that's the portrait for the kitchens. No, just kidding. The Hufflepuff common room. I guess we don't really know how they it, get it's into the it. It's we the barrels. It's the barrels. Tap yeah. the rhythm on the barrels. Yeah. Oh, that's right. We figured that out on Pottermore, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So in theory, the Hufflepuffs and Slytherins can always get into their common rooms as long as they know the passwords. Not so simple though for Gryffindors who have this barrier and Ravenclaws who have to guess some riddle. Why is this set up differently? You know, was this something decided on by the founders, or was it later? I, I think it would. It makes sense that you know maybe Godric Gryffindor thought this would be a great opportunity to give some students a chance to prove themselves. You know, go on adventures just naturally. It's going to happen if you get locked out of your dormitory. But I was thinking, uh, just on top of this, it's so easy for the uh, Gryffindor students to just kind of sneak out. Isn't there any way the McGonagall maybe knows when somebody exits the building? Or, or the the dormitory? Couldn't there be some sort of magical, like protection or de- detection, security, anything? And mm. like nobody ever nobody ever stops them. So I feel like they're almost encouraged to go out and into the castle, Gryffindors anyway. Well, I mean, I think the fat lady leaving is kind of their consequence for that. It's like, oh well, you left when you weren't supposed to be, and now you can't get back in. Oh well, that's yeah. your own fault. That's yeah. very Gryffindor. Which nature. is interesting because some like. Hermione decides to join tag along on the adventure, whereas Neville, who is curled up on the floor sleeping because he forgot the password. So But he's too scared to go on adventures. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That Hermione opens, you know, opens up to just going on the adventure, whereas Neville's just kinda like, Well, guess life sucks, I'll just wait until I can get in. Well that's her bravery showing through. Yep. Yep, definitely. So no duel actually happens, which is kind of disappointing. I would have liked to see a duel because Malfoy is—I uh, think he's kind of a chicken. He's also trying to just get Harry in trouble um, by tipping off Filch. But Neville gets scared, has another klutz moment, knocks over the armor, and then they are taking off, running from Filch, and they are just trying to put as much distance between them and Filch as they can. They find this locked door, and Hermione opens the door with the namesake of this show, Alohomora. Hello, Amora. Perfect yes. swish and oh, it's probably not a swish and click, is it? Uh, oh, swish and not. flick. Whoops. For no, Alohomora is Amora just. Leviosa. Yeah, that's the levitation charm. Right. Yeah, Alohomora Swish. is without swishes or flicks. You just put it to the lock. Right. Right. Yeah. My Open bad. So, awesome moment, obviously, for the show because we get to hear Alohomora used for the first time. But on a more serious note, why in the world is only an Alohomora charm protecting people <laughs> from this dangerous? three-headed dog how how early do we think most students not hermione because she is not a normal student would know this 
uh, this Alohomora charm. This is dangerous, even if Dumbledore told them the door was off limits. Well, I don't know. I mean, kids die at Hogwarts all the time. I don't think Dumbledore <laughs> was thinking about... <laughs> I don't think that, was that's thinking not about okay, door. Noah. That's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All the time? Anyway, I don't think someone has died. That's died with Myrtle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it depends on your theory. Anyway, I think that... Uh, <laughs> Dumbledore meant the door more to protect from, like, dark wizards who could possibly go in to get the stone. And maybe they thought that Alohomora was such a simple incantation that no one would ever think about it, to use it, because they think it's, like, so obviously protected against. But the so, door doesn't even matter. Once you've got past the door, you have to get past the dog. So it's the dog... They're not protect... The door isn't there to protect you from the dog. The dog is there to protect you from everything else. No, but the door so, could be yeah. the first test, just to get yeah. anywhere. But I mean, this I this it's... spell is in, you know, the the first, the standard book of spells, year one. So any student who had read the book would know the spell. But as soon right. as they opened the door, they'd see Fluffy and run away, hopefully. Hopefully. Oh, yeah, unless they're they didn't Hagrid. get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. And, and thinking about Fluffy, there is obviously this connection to mythology, um, very similar to Cerberus, the three-headed dog who protects the underworld. And here, Fluffy... Our three-headed dog is protecting the area beneath the school that is clearly dangerous with a lot of trials. So I just found that um, another relationship to mythology interesting. Also linked to the afterlife is again, you you would be um, Cerberus guards the underworld and um, Fluffy is guarding the key to eternal life. Hmm. Very true. And it's also worth noting that uh, Dante actually evokes the three-headed creatures all the time. Um, do we want to talk briefly about how the, the trapdoor and going through reflects the underworld or go, going down through hell? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay, so, so Fluffy and the dog kind of generally refl- reflects uh, an insatiable creature or it reflects animal, animal passions because uh, I'm, I'm reading Dante's Inferno at the moment actually and uh, when you get down to about the seventh wheel, you get to this creature who keeps biting himself. He's, he's crazed and this kind of reflects man's passion. And people who have this, in, who have too much passion, sinners who have uh, too much passion, go here because they they can't control themselves or they have so much anger. Um, but the dog can also reflect uh, like loyalty, uh, as as we know. This, this is kind of uh, in a, in the Renaissance period, dogs were meant to show like kind of faith and loyalty and and higher intelligence that is kind of not that can cannot deceive itself. It's kind of intelligence that doesn't. Uh, it's just kind of natural because if you think about a dog, dogs are just kind of enjoying themselves without thinking about it too much, and that's kind of a higher intelligence, especially in Christian theology. But but anyway, we could see the dog being eased by music as reflective of all of these different symbols of the dog. So Fluffy is you know rife with symbolism. Thank you, Caesar yeah. Milan. Thank you. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. English major hat off. Yeah. <laughs> nice work. And in this room with Fluffy, Hermione is the only one who notices the trap door. Once they get back to the common room, you know, they take off running for their lives once again. And, and it just reinforces how important she is to the, uh, to the trio. You know, Harry and Ron are completely oblivious to things like this. Harry immediately starts thinking about what could be under the trap door once he knows about it. But without Hermione, they you know, would not have noticed uh, the trap door. So it just sort of reinforces how important she is to them. They don't know it yet, but yeah, she is very important. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that, um, as, but at the same time, and this is something that's more, um, it's elaborated on in the movie, which I really loved. 
Ron says it in the movie that after Hermione is much more concerned about them, you know, she says that they almost got them killed, but worse, expelled. And Hermione really does need to get her priorities together. She's more worried about expulsion than death, which, you know, says a lot about her mental state, I think. But It's cool. She's a true Gryffindor. Uh, I suppose. But she's more worried how, about the How wolves. is that Gryffindor if she's worried she's, about yeah. getting expelled? That's Ravenclaw. It, yeah. it's, it's Gryffindor because she's not worried about death. Okay. Uh, all right. I'll, I'll has, buy that. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I'll buy but it's a good it's a good close to the chapter. We have this really intense scene, and then we start to see this relationship build between Harry, Ron, and Hermione that moves um, more into the the next. Chapter. And Harry finally puts it together. I think he realizes what just might be under that trap door. Yeah, I think this is definitely a turning point in the book, as you know, they start to think about what lies beneath. Yeah, put the pieces together. Yep. Chapter ten, Halloween. <laughs> Alright, so next morning, um, everyone comes down for breakfast, and Draco is just surprised to see Harry and Ron are there, and they're totally fine. They're not expelled from Hogwarts, and they made it out alive. And uh, a mysterious package comes down from the sky, and it's a, it's a broom-shaped box, and everyone kind of knows what it is, but Harry's not allowed to open it, because Professor McGonagall says so. But we know it's a Nimbus 2000. And I just, I was reading this and I was saying, really, Professor McGonagall, a Nimbus 2000, one of the most expensive brands of, uh, of brooms that even, even Draco can't have at his own home. So I just want to know, who paid for this? Is there a special Hogwarts fund? Or we know how McGonagall is really passionate about Quidditch and Harry. Did she, you know, spend all her money to buy this? I, I can't imagine how expensive it is, but it's a lot. Well, I mean, I don't think it's all her money, but yeah, I would say she bought it for him. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely think she did. And if it does come from the school funds, is it you know similar to those funds that were available to Tom Riddle, who didn't have money uh, to buy his stuff? And does that make it more controversial? Because the broom is definitely not a necessity like the textbooks would have been for, for Riddle. Yeah, that, no, it's not at all. That's why I think McGonagall took it out of her personal fund. Yeah, I think mm. McGonagall would have paid for it as well. And she would have... She does care about Harry as well, not just the team and I think she she feels bad for the way he's grown up and we know that she didn't want to leave him with the Dursleys and she just she knows something so inherently magical and so obviously something that he wants Um, and just yeah and she knew his parents yeah so it's just uh this is probably a very personal gift because if the school had bought it probably would have been like a clean sweep yeah I think this Mm -hmm. in her way is how she's showing affection to Harry. I agree with Rosie. Totally. Yeah. All right. So th- this whole chapter then becomes about Draco, Draco, Harry, and Ron getting really excited about Quidditch and stuff. And Harry and Ron are on one side, and Draco and Crabbe and Goyle are on the other. And Draco just becomes a very, very jealous of the fact that Harry has this uh, Nimbus 2000. He can't believe it. And I just, you know... Looking at this from an English major perspective, maybe Rosie can help me out here a little bit. Do we do we see the uh, the the broom being put on this pedestal and how they're both uh, all the guys are like they they love it so much? Do we see like this quidditch and back and forth as uh, a battle of masculinities a little bit and Harry's wanting the wa- wanting uh, wanting the broom and, and being better on it as kind of a I'm just saying is there a narrative of like being a man running through this story or is it, or the coming of age story? Um, 
I don't know if it's necessarily just being a man or if it's that kind of it's an essential school story thing, isn't it? It's it's being the jock, being the the sporty guy at high school. It's it's kind of natural for um I don't know why it's natural, but it is for the athletic people to be considered the best. And if this is Wizards version of um I don't know, American football or whatever, um or just football soccer for us in England. Yeah. Then it's it's Harry wanting to prove that he is he can be that um that cool guy again that everyone thinks he is. Well, and he does, but he is in the jock house, right? Which we mm-hmm. talked about last week. So I, that fits, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely see a lot of typical buildings Roman themes coming out here. So it's good that you pulled that out. Mm-hmm. I, I just I was really struck by the idolatry of the broomstick, you know, and. Uh, well, I mean, I, it's also really expensive and really cool, and no one's ever really seen one, so... That's mm-hmm. true. Plus, for a reading audience, it's kind of, what do we think of when we think of witches? We think of black hats and flying around on broomsticks. We need, as an audience and as a reader, to see this thing that we know is so inherently magical within our books, and we want Harry to be good at it, because that's what we know of as a successful witch or wizard. Yeah. And as you just said, the the broom is all often like oriented with like a witch, and yeah. is it is it true to say that in a way, uh, Joe has masculinized masculinized the broomstick a little bit as now she has to prove maybe part of the first book was to show how a broomstick could be fun for males as well as females. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean we don't see a, a woman on a broomstick for a long time, I mean, right? I mean, no, we won't well, put it. We see it in this this on the Gryffindor team. Their chasers are all girls. Yeah. I just feel like the broomstick has been kind of masculinized a little bit, and I kind of I really want to go and wand uh, uh, broom phalluses and stuff, but I cannot, and I can do that later. But that's what the forums this, are for. That's what the forums are for. <laughs> so if you want to go there, be my guest. But while we just brought up the Quidditch team, how cool is it that the Quidditch team is co-ed? It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think everything at Hogwarts is co-ed, though. There's no, there's no separation, and I think that that was important for for Joe as a female writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, she was forced to to write her stories as J.K. Rowling rather than, um, rather than Joanne. Right. So mm-hmm. I think she wanted to to make everything as kind of open and equal, equal, equal as possible. Yeah. Yep. It's so like. And that's that's just really cool. And I believe the the Slytherin team is it all male? It is. Yep. Yeah. So we can we'll get there later. But maybe a gen, maybe a gender politics discussion going on with these Quidditch teams. Well, Absolutely. I mean, we know the Definitely. Slytherins aren't really all that fair and equal and everything anyway. So it doesn't. I mean, it makes sense to me that there are no females on that team. Yeah, I mean, you know that as like because I love gender politics and thinking back to like when the founders would have started up. Do we think that you know? Salazar may have been a little mm, not so yeah maybe he would have been and not so um equal when it comes to gender issues definitely I think the pure blood idea to me definitely screams kind of masculinity old yeah old kind of old old ways old blood old families that kind of very patriarchal view of kind of the head of the family and all of his offspring. Yeah, he definitely wasn't um, leading any, you know, feminist rallies or anything. No. Exactly. <laughs> but then he wasn't. He wasn't necessarily for all men either, because he didn't get along with Godric Gryffindor, and then he, he was really just more into himself. He will create his own chamber of secrets. But that was more right. about the their beliefs than the than the sex of the person. Which I think is 
also very interesting because it definitely parallels, you know, how race comes into like um, more like uh, as far as like our actual um, history. Bloodline. Um, yeah. How race and gender have sort of intersected at a very interesting place in uh, at least American history. I can't speak for, you know, the UK, but. Mm-hmm. We were talking um, a few weeks ago in the Academia podcast um, about the idea of um, Slytherins as Nazis and that whole kind of idea of this, again, that would be a very patriarchal, very um, pure blood point of view. Um which I think you can definitely see within kind of Slytherin, within Voldemort, within the Malfoy family, all of that kind of... Yeah, of course, Slytherins are not Nazis. In. No. <laughs> uh, but I, I, we feel like Joe ha- has posited them, at least within Harry's story, as these kind of Nazi-esque characters, or especially the Death Eaters. That's... Yeah. So, I mean, we'll, yeah, we'll I mean, get when into When I said Slytherin, I meant Salazar rather than the house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, there's a there's another flight with Harry just before he's going to be training with Wood to learn about Quidditch, and it's just so easy for him. He's just naturally flying, and the the broom just reacts to him perfectly. So I wanted to get your guys' uh, opinion. Are are brooms kind of like wands? Can they again? Can they think to a degree, or is it more a reactionary thing? And is it is it just more natural? Because we know that they're they're made from trees, obviously, so they have a natural connection to to people. But I just want to know how does it work? And also to similar to wands because if they're from trees, so are wands. So exactly, they're, they how are they different from wands besides not being able to produce magic? Well, I mean, they don't have the magical cores in them, so I think I think the core is what gives the wands the personality. It kind of what awakens the wood and makes it special. Yeah, yeah. So as, it's like a conduit, right? So as far as the broomsticks go, I mean the 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 wood itself, uh, I think, makes very little difference. I mean. I don't even think they ever tell us what wands or what uh, broomsticks are made of, but I think it's more an instinctual thing. It's if you're comfortable on a broom, then the broom is going to react positively. If you're like Neville and you're anxious and worried, then it's going to shoot you forty feet in the air and drop you. But then I always found you... Hermione's reaction to flying was really interesting. Like she should be um, really confident. She knows all of the. Um, kind of the theory behind flying. She she would have read Quidditch through the ages so many times. Yeah. She w- she would know all about it. So why is putting it into practice for her so difficult? Because it's so much more instinctual, and Hermione is exactly. um, very bookish, very bookish. So if you can't yeah. learn it out of a book, she has a hard time with it. The broom has got to be like an extension of the self, maybe even more than the wand, because it's just it's it's going towards your. It, it's reacting to your, your smallest movements or signals. So you really just have to be confident and, and feel it. And Hermione hasn't, uh, at least at this stage, she hasn't excelled in that as much as Harry has. Well, she's not quite sure who she is yet. I think she's still trying to find her place. She's still That's trying to too. fit in. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think I think also a difference is the fact that brooms, uh, I think they're created by a number of enchantments, maybe more so than wands. Mm-hmm. So you can really, like, infuse various magics into them to make them different yeah definitely that's how it sets up the competition between companies that produce brooms i would think yeah and they produce them in mass i'm sure yeah yeah kind of like cars what features does this broom have what spells or enchantments are on the broom Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so is it really only a matter of enchantments that make one broom better than another and could you enchant like a a clean sweep to be faster than a firebolt 
Um, I would think not. Yeah, I would think not. Because then what would be the point in buying a Firebolt? There's some secret in the production that the company is able to. Yeah, yeah. Some spell that they've invented. Yeah. Yeah. And just like streamlining them and things as well, like you would for a normal car. Yep. Yeah, just uh, just as an aside, uh, anybody listening to the show, we uh, there's also we also want to feature art on Alohomora, and all these scenes of Harry flying in the very first year are rife with various images you could create. So if anyone wants to wants to make those, we'd be happy to feature them on the site. You could you could uh, upload them to what's that website, Rosie? Uh, to Photo Bucket, or you could even submit them through Twitter or um, Tumblr, and we'll upload them to the site ourselves. Or email us at alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, exactly. So through all those windows, we'd be happy to put them up. So Wood starts teaching Harry about Quidditch, and we go- get the various balls. And this is where I'm going to spin off a little bit. Uh, you tell me if I'm going- reading in a little bit too much. But we you? see the... Never. <laughs> <laughs> We see the, the bludgers are these kind of aggressive balls that are actively trying to hit you. And we see the snitch is this kind of small thing that you have to catch. And I was wondering, if is the Quidditch game itself a site of a, a kind of cultural gender discourse? Because if, if you think about the balls attacking people, this is kind of a culturally masculine position. And then the snitch, which ultimately wins the game, and both seekers on each opposing team are trying to catch, are kind of, is kind of this feminine, elusive thing that the seeker has to catch. And uh, and that's how the game is won. So is that is that a ridiculous theory, or does that kind of change our reading of the game? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of a stretch, but I can see where you're going. I mean, definitely that the female, the more feminine-based part of the game, being the snitch, is is smaller. It's very um, pristine. It's elusive. Um, I think those are generally more feminine traits. Um, I can see where you're going. What, what what do you think about the the quaffle though? Do we think it's the quaffle's like neutral? neutral? Yeah, it neutral doesn't have any out of the ma- mix. Yeah, even if it it doesn't seem to be magical or have personality as the other ones, it's just it's yeah. it's right in the middle. It's hard to see. It's hard to see the balls as um as something that's part of the gender discourse because I think there's so much as we sort of alluded to earlier that's going on in the game itself with the players that I think is more playing into the gender discussion, but. Yeah, I can see. I can see hints of it. Just my, just my like crazy outlook in a sense, or not, not too crazy. Just like very, yeah. very in depth. Yeah. Um. All right. So after after Harry learns about Quidditch, it's it's getting towards Halloween dinner. He runs. He runs right in, and actually, what's really cool is the fact that his running in is so abrupt that the line in the books is so abrupt. It's it's it cuts right in the middle of a description of the of the room and then just runs right up to Dumbledore and has his has his line. Troll, troll in the dungeon. Watch out to know. And it's <laughs> uh, I love that they duplicated it so well in the movie. Uh-huh. Mhm. In the movie, yeah. And then so fast forward through troll fight, Harry st- sticks his wand up his nose. <laughs> yada yada. And then the the professors come in and Quirrell is one of them, and he faints and clutches his heart at the side of the troll. And I and I was wondering, yes, it's true that he's been putting on the show the whole time for the other teachers, but he did also fail Voldemort miserably in this scene when he sees the troll down because he, he meant that originally to distract the distract Dumbledore so he could go off towards the um, third floor. 
Now, we know Snape probably had him off at that moment, but in, in all cases, it was a failure. Do we think that he was clutching his heart because of Voldemort or just as part of the show? I think it's definitely part of the show. Um, I mean, yeah, I think he's still trying to play off the part, especially with Snape there, who by this time I would imagine he thinks might be on to him. Um, he's trying to play up the part as much as possible. I don't know. Maybe maybe Voldemort um, kind of got, you know, I wonder if he could see it. I mean, being out the back of his head, I don't know. But, you know, in later books, when Voldemort gets angry, Harry feels it. So maybe Voldemort was angry and Quirrell felt it. And it was so much that he kind of collapsed. But then I guess if Harry didn't feel anything that instant, maybe it was fake. Mm-hmm. But maybe it wasn't necessarily to do with Voldemort. Maybe it was to do with the fact that it was Harry. I mean... Quirrell has definitely aligned himself with Voldemort's return here, but he's just brought in this mountain troll that no one should be able to defeat, and here is Harry Potter, who is Quirrell's enemy at this point as well, managing to defeat this mountain troll with only the help of two of his 11-year-old friends. And this is who Quirrell is basically facing throughout the entire year. So... When Quirrell looks at the troll, he's not just looking at the troll, he's looking at Harry as well, and maybe that's enough to make him faint. The threat Perhaps. that Harry poses to his plan. Yeah. Hey, round of applause, guys, for Harry's first 11-year-old victory against Voldemort. Yay! Yay. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he doesn't do the... I mean, he's going to do crazy, intense things throughout the series that you know young kids can't really do, but this is like... This is definitely the second one. His uh, be- yeah. beating Voldemort when he was one, that was the first, but this is the second. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but it's the first time that they're really working as a team as well. It's it's yeah. Ron listening to Hermione's earlier lesson of Wingardium Leviosa that ultimately beats the troll. Yep. This is yeah. This is a really emotional moment, guys. And then then we close out the chapter with, but from that moment on, Hermione Granger became their friend. There are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other, and knocking out a twelve foot mountain troll is one of them. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. My Gryffindor love just, uh, I just emote with this part so much. It's a good line. It's a good line. It is. Definitely. It is. Mm. And I, there's not, there's not really much more I can add to it, but I just wanted to mention it. Yeah. What, what do you think it is about conquering a mountain troll that makes you friends? Well, just, just the fact that it's a mountain troll. And they did it together. Experience. They absolutely did it together. Like every one of those three did something in that scene to like make it happen they could not have done it with just two of them with just one of them it took all three plus and it's maybe... essentially saving hermione's life which she can she's in, she's eternally in their debt for so mm-hmm. i'm not even going to bring up the gender stuff there Dan, damsel yeah, in distress that's true but... but hermione's not that kind of damsel that's right. But you could, maybe not necessarily in terms of gender roles, but in terms of the romance of the story. I mean, the first time that her life was in danger, and it's Ron that saves her. Yeah, and he's Aww. the one that actually does the crushing blow to the to the troll. Because he listened to her, not because he did it himself. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he listened to her, yeah. Yeah, so that empowers the feminine role there. So, Do we think that... Uh... Also, the fact that they're a Gryffindor makes sense why they're they're suddenly friends. Maybe it's just, it's just something about Gryffindors. They always have to do something epic with each other to finally become friends. Yeah, I think there's some sort of camaraderie there since they've, you know, accomplished this very, you know, almost like a quest. Um, Caleb, have you ever gone on any quests with any Gryffindors? Oh, uh, man, I'd have to think about that. I mean, I definitely think there's been times in my life where I've done, you know, very, uh, not very extreme, but somewhat 
ra- above average things that you know definitely bring me closer to people. Um, probably things from college that I'm not going to talk about on the show. But... <laughs> yeah, that's probably a safe bet. Yeah. Yeah. Just wait till we all get to LeakyCon. Yes. Woo. More about that later, of course. Do 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 do. Okay. <laughs> cool. So that's Special I mean. Great. Feature. Well, that oh, hold on. That ends our chapter discussion for this week. So if you have any comments on anything that we said, you can head over to alohomora.mugglenet.com and let us know what you think. Great. So it's now time for our special feature of the week, which this week we want to know all of your what-if questions. Um, So we're going to take some fun and interesting what-if questions from the fandom and basically just try and answer them. Um, So here are a few that we've already collected. What if Fluffy had attacked Ron? that first time in that in the in the corridor well what do you guys think considering harry and hermione i mean hermione might have known some magic but considering they didn't do much know much of it i think ron would have died and then <laughs> everyone would have been oh, really no. sad oh no and poor neville probably would have fainted or run away screaming yeah because if it would have been ron that got attacked instead of neville then you know that would have been terrible luck if it had been neville well, I think it's just if any of them would have gotten hurt, it would have been much more likely Neville. But if it would have been Neville, of, that would have been really sad, considering yeah. everything that's happened to him. Oh, exactly. poor guy! I know, poor kid. Do you think that Hermione would have been able to do anything? I mean, she she knows more magic than the others. Would she have been able to stop Fluffy in any way? Oh. I, I don't it. think so. I don't think so. Well, she, I think they would have had. She seemed to know about that curse of the bogies. Maybe she could have shot that at uh, at Fluffy. Mm-hmm. I don't think a curse of the... He already has enough bogeys. <laughs> That's true, huh? <laughs> Plus, isn't that Ginny's speciality later on? Yeah. Well, no, she does the, the bat bogey hex. Bat bogey. So. I've always assumed that was the same thing. Possibly. I bet they're similar, at least. Yeah. How many bogeys are in this chapter? A lot. A lot of bogeys. The troll mucus? Yeah. Does Joe have an affinity? <laughs> I think it's Joe recognizing affinity that 11-year-old boys have. Yes. It's true. I mean, they have the birdie bots bogeys. I mean, maybe wizards are just fascinated with bogeys. Talk about the marketing of this book to 11, 12-year-old boys. Yep. The the entire thing. It's just, it's a a publishing strategy. Oh, come on. There are girls out there that like bogeys, too. I'm sure. (laughs) I'm not speaking for myself. I'm just saying in general. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not a publishing strategy. It's more of a storytelling strategy. It's convincing enough that the 11-year-old narrator of this story, who is Harry is Notices. interested in these things yeah mm-hmm. and, and we get fewer yeah. and fewer of these just great writing by i'm thinking i'm thinking that if ron was attacked um what would they have done i mean they would have had to go to madame pomfrey to get him fixed and then what would, yeah, what would their story have would have been? been yeah they would have uh i mean they would have maybe tried to come up with a story maybe dumbledore would have showed up knowing what was happening maybe they wouldn't have gotten in a crazy amount of trouble but keep in mind dumbledore knows everything that's going on yeah, he probably so. knows that they're onto it or something. So, but Filch is in the area as well. So if Ron got attacked, I'm fairly sure he would have been fairly loud. So Filch yeah. would probably have heard. And then Filch's Filch's heart would have grown three sizes that day. He would have run, <laughs> run Ron to Madame Pomfrey, in which Ron would be healed, and they would uncover their new romance. So yeah, to then, to yeah. follow on with that idea, what if the trio was caught by Filch before or after they went in to see Fluffy? They would have been hung mm. by their ankles in the dungeons. Yeah. I feel like this <laughs> what if question push. shows up a lot in the series. You know, whether it's 
them sneaking into the library or just around the castle or out on the grounds. Mm-hmm. Like he, there's a lot of times where we could ask this question that would have just thrown everything into disorder. I would, that I would, would have been caught and caught. I would say Filch would have run off to McGonagall or Dumbledore and tried to get them in trouble, but they might have just been dismissed. Go back to bed, lose, yeah. Yeah, lose 15 points or whatever. Yeah, go back to bed. Probably. Although, okay, although would they have been caught outside of the third floor or inside the third floor? Mm, I don't think Filch is going near that third floor corridor if he knows what's in there. That's true. So if they were caught when they were running out of the trophy room. Yeah, then, you know, there would have been minimal punishment. Because then they probably would have told, you know, what the story was that... Malfoy. Well, I mean, Phillips already knew that it was a setup of a duel of something. Right. So, yeah, they probably would have, uh, the professor, whoever Filch went to, would have been a little more lenient, knowing that Malfoy Maybe gave them, them detention. Yeah. Detention or something. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so what if question number three? What if they hadn't noticed the trapdoor, going back to our earlier discussion? Would they have ever known about the Philosopher's Stone being down there? They probably would have gone down to the Chamber of Secrets and then found nothing and had to turn around. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have made for an awful book if they had never noticed yeah. the trapdoor. Um, yeah, because I think, as we mentioned earlier, this is kind of the turning point but, where they start investigating. But would they have learned about it in another way? Hag- yeah, do you really need to know about the trapdoor to know that the dog is there for a reason? If, yeah. if you know that the thing is being hidden in Hogwarts and suddenly there's a corridor that's out of bounds... Whether yep. you've got a trapdoor into it or not, you kind of yeah. you'd start to think Put, there's something there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they probably would have ventured back. Gryffindors can't contain them. Hagrid would have let something slip, and they would have figured it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A few more hours, and Hagrid would have told them exactly how to get past the mirror and the, and the chess game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He has all this. Does Hagrid know all about to that? Divulge. About hmm. what? About about, yeah, about all of the protections. Uh, I think all the professors know about all of them. They know However, they exist, at least, whether they know what they are or not. Cause Quirrell but, doesn't but the question know was what. the professors, the professors or, or Hagrid. They might have just not told Hagrid because they don't consider him. Uh, I think he's but, in on it. I think if yeah, he would he be more likely fluffy. to know. I think if the other staff did not know, he would because Dumbledore would tell him. That's, that's true. Sp- speaking of Fluffy, where did Fluffy live before he lived on the third floor? Yeah, and where does he go after book one? Well, he definitely goes oh. into the Forbidden Forest. I remember reading that. I don't remember where. Um, but I do remember reading that. Somebody brought it up in a fan of the week once. And so I went searching mm-hmm. for it. And he lives in the Forbidden Forest. Yeah, Makes so, a good pet for Grop. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think Hagrid probably found him somewhere. God only knows where before where he was before he was chilling in the third floor corridor. Okay. Guarding the gates of hell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hades is pissed because he lost his guard. <laughs> okay, so our final what-if question for today is, what if Hermione wasn't trapped by the troll? What if it was someone else? And would they still have gone to save them? So, thinking about our earlier discussion, what if it was Pavati or someone like that? Well, I can't imagine they'd leave anybody there. Ever. Yeah, you know? yeah but still, like they they hear the scream... And they know it's Hermione. And as they're taking off, they think, you know, that they wouldn't, she wouldn't have been there without them, you know. Um, yeah, they feel guilty. You know, ma- Ron making her cry and take off earlier. So is that the so, only reason they help her is because they feel bad? I don't think it's the only reason, but I think it's the prevailing one. Mm-hmm. 
Because I but still think it, there's like a Gryffindor-esque, you know, need to save the day sort of going on. But be the hero. They definitely, yeah, they feel compelled to do it more so because of the situation with Hermione, so. I mean, but consider you locked somebody inside with a full-grown mountain troll in a small bathroom. You'd go, if you, and you were there, therefore the cause of the, the attack then that would follow. You're going to go back and save that person. Me? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And see, or at least unlock the door and run. That's probably what I would do because um, there's actually a great discussion going on um, in your forum on the on the forums, Caleb, um, about which house you least yeah. represent. And for me, unfortunately, it is Gryffindor. I, um, you know, I'm I'm brave and courageous when I need to be, but a mountain troll, I don't know. I I would probably unlock the door and run. <laughs> yeah. Open it at Everyone best, should... but I wouldn't go in. Yeah. There is a lot of good discussion going on there. If you haven't, check out my forum, Caleb's Covered, and. Talk about which house you least feel you fit in. Good stuff going on there. But what if it had been someone like Pavati that was in the, the bathroom and they had gone and sa- tried to save the day still? Would, I mean, we've, we've already pointed out that line where it says that you couldn't go through something like that without becoming friends. Would Hermione not have become part of the trio? Would it have been Pavati um, and maybe it become a, a quadrat with, with both sisters? Yeah, that's very true. Because they, they kind of hated Hermione. Before yeah. this, I think it's such an important moment that it's Hermione. So I think it would have thrown off the whole dynamic. But did they hate Hermione? I think it's more that they were annoyed by her know-it-all nature. Yeah, I mean, that, I think Ron I mean, is yeah. Ron is definitely much more annoyed by her, and Harry just is by proxy because of Ron. I think. So. Yeah, I think Harry generally doesn't have an opinion about her. He just feels it through Ron. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's partly due to Ron's kind of little brother syndrome as well. He doesn't like being shown up about things, and Hermione is constantly doing things better than he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it was Pervati in there, um, hard to say. I, I don't know. I mean, why was she in there? Just because she was using the loo? Or... Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. I mean, there it likely wouldn't have been many people in there because it's the Halloween feast, so Hermione is skipping it for a reason, so... You know, maybe this is just a scene that had to be set up this way. Yeah, because they wouldn't have gone to the bathroom and they wouldn't have locked the door or heard the scream if they hadn't been the cause of her in there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, that about answers that question. Well, good what ifs. If you guys come up with any other good what ifs, you know, send them to us. We want to hear them. Absolutely. Via Twitter or Facebook or site comment. Or forums <laughs> or Tumblr or anywhere. We're all over the place. Yeah, we are. Anywhere online. Any So send any us alcove. an owl. <laughs> oh, I'd love to get an owl. That'd be fun. A real owl? Yeah, I love owls. Owl post. I want it. I met I met the uh, the owl Gizmo that plays Hedwig when I went to the studio tour. Did I tell you that? Oh, really? Oh, That's yeah. awesome. That was really cool. That's not a real owl? Yes. What do you mean? It's a real owl, right? Yeah, his name is Gizmo. There's a, I, there's oh, a picture wait. of it on my Twitter. Is that true? That's true. Oh. It makes me happy that he's still alive. Yeah, I met Crookshanks and um, Pigwidgeon, too. <gasps> ah, I love it. I know, it's really cool. <laughs> All right, sorry. And I believe the, the serious, uh, serious Black Dog is currently up for adoption. No, I think he's Aww. been adopted by now. That's like a six-month-old story. Oh, good. Thank goodness. You gotta go to MuggleNet and read the news more, Noah. <laughs> I posted that news story. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so here's Noah's posed question of the week. Everybody listen up. So in these chapters, we've been talking a lot about the trio and their courageous attitudes towards each other and the way they faced 
the, the way they faced various dangers in the opening period of their relationship. Now, to what extent do we believe that the trio need each other to show this courage? And do we think they'd be able to stand, stand up on their own if given the same troubles? Do the trio perhaps represent different aspects of courage? And what ideas can a reader draw from their characters that might apply to their own lives? So, what is, so in essence, what is Joe saying about courage through these characters? Yeah, so what we'd like you to do is to head over to the front page of Alohomora, where you can write your comments right in there, and we'll be reading them on the show. And if any of you fans out there want to be on the show as our special fan guest, um, there's several ways that you can do that. The first is by submitting the content, like answers to the pose question of the week, on our Alohomora website or on the forums. Um, the second is you can send us a recording of yourself analyzing a part of the books. Please know that you do need appropriate audio equipment and recording equipment. Um, just as of note, um, we're getting a lot of recordings of people just kind of talking about their love for Harry Potter. And that's great. We love hearing those. But in order to be on the show, we need to know that you can analyze. So please send us a clip of yourself analyzing the book. All the other, if, all the other clips we love hearing. But we can't have you on the show if you can't analyze. And if you just need to contact us or keep up with us in general... Be sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is MN, And check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore. And you can actually now listen to us right on, right on our Facebook page. Just click on the podcast tab, choose an episode, and enjoy the episode right there. Definitely check out our Tumblr page, uh, which is mnalohamora.tumblr.com. And of course our main page where you can find just about everything, alohamora.mugglenet.com. And as we've mentioned several times, our main email address is alohamorapodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget you can also subscribe to us on our iTunes feed. Thank you all so much for the wonderful reviews and comments that, and suggestions that you've left on our iTunes pages. Um, there are different ones for all the different countries, so please do keep them coming in. We love reading them, and we definitely do take your opinions into, into consideration. And we'd also like to mention that we'll be going to LeakyCon this summer in Chicago. All of us. We're all going to be there. And we'd love to meet you guys. we just love to talk Potter with anybody. So if you'd like to see us there, we'll be there um, from August 9th to the 12th. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there could be there could be some secret show. We don't know. But we'll be happy to talk with any fans and to hang out. Yeah, so come find us. We'll be at the MuggleNet table. I'm Noah. I'm Rosie. I'm Caleb. And I'm Kat. Thank you for listening to episode four of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. sound so lovingly English right now with the I mean I love the birds behind you I, it's just it sets up the whole scene I, I picture you Very like English country garden yes I was just gonna say I picture you sitting in a garden and there's birds all around you very like Snow White-esque while you record your podcast on your computer well my bedroom is an extension so I'm technically in the garden right now oh lovely <laughs>